0: In the Wall Street Journal, there appeared the following job description for the most creative job in the world, wanted. This job involves taste, fashion, interior decorating, recreation, education, transportation, psychology, romance, cuisine, designing, literature, medicine, handicraft, art, horticultural, economics, government, community relations, pediatrics, geriatrics, entertainment, maintenance, purchasing, direct mail, law, accounting, religion, energy, and management. Now you might be thinking to yourself, no one can do all of that. It's an impossibility. They'd have to be superhuman being in order to do all that. It's impossible, and yet there are literally thousands if not millions of Americans who fit that bill for what the Wall Street Street Journal describes as a politically correct job description of a mom. Of a mom. What a job, being a mom. For the past 41 years, I have more than that now. No, no, not 41. 41 years I've lived with a mom. We've been married 45 years, but we didn't have children right away. But 41 years, I've lived with a mom, not my own, although I'm sure at times she probably thought she was raising three children instead of two. Uh, but I've watched over the years as my wife has put on different hats and has worked at uh, different roles within our family structure. At times, mother, homemaker, decorator, psychologist, teacher, pastor's wife, administrator, household manager. And I marveled at how easily and quickly she could switch gears. You know, at times it appeared she could do three or four things at once. And I struggle with my linear one-track mind just to do one thing at a time. And I certainly really appreciate my wife and now the grandmother of our grandchildren. Um, she loves being a grandma. Um, that's her. I remember years ago when she went for a job interview, the, the uh, superintendent asked her what she wanted to be when she grows up, when she gets older. She says, I'm looking forward to being a grandma. And that's, uh, that's what she loves to be. And she loves being retired too right now so she can have that time to spend with, with her grandchildren. But my hat comes off to her this morning on this Mother's Day. Uh, Certainly mothers and grandmothers indeed are special. I also pay tribute this morning to my own mother. She just celebrated her 92nd birthday. And uh, I just have been blessed to have a godly mother who has walked with the Lord for many, 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 many years and while she's slowed down in recent years, she's not able to be involved in her church ministries like she once was. She continues to amaze me at her walk with God, her love for people, for the Word of God, her love for my family. And you've probably heard horror stories of mother-in-laws and daughter-in-laws and so on. But my wife will tell you that she has the best mother-in-law in the world. My mom treats my my wife like her own daughter and, uh, helps that they had the birthday on the same day, uh, for me it was great because I only had to remember one day of the year, and if I ever forgot that day, I was in trouble because I had no place to go, uh, it was about, uh, both of them born May the, uh, February the 1st, and, uh, but, uh, she, she has been really close, and I talked to her at least once or twice a week, um. And um, her mind is clear. Body's failing, but her mind is clear, and it's been great. Indeed, she's special to me. I don't know what I'll do. Uh, we've talked about that this this day. You know, what will we do when she passes? You know, it's gonna be a big hole in my heart when that happens. Um, She prays for me every day. She prays for. I called her when Stan had a stroke, and she's gonna be praying for him and for Edie and the family. Uh, just to have a godly mom like that. You know, these days, though, of equal rights and opportunities, career choices, and perhaps we have lost sight of the tremendous and significant privilege it is to be a mother of children. Today's media portrays a career. Women's careers as being exciting, fulfilling, stimulating, and challenging, whereas motherhood is portrayed as dull, boring, and unfulfilling. But the trend seems to be changing because more and more young mothers are choosing to stay at home with their children rather than to pursue their careers, at least until their children are a little bit older. These young mothers view themselves as professional moms, and they are bringing the same intensity to motherhood as they did to the development of their careers. They attend seminars, they read books, they develop websites, they have support groups from mothers today. Viewing motherhood as a profession, just as important as being an accountant, a lawyer, a therapist, or whatever. But this morning, I want to raise motherhood even higher. Higher than a full-time profession, to the level of being a ministry. Motherhood is a ministry. It is the investing of your life in the lives of your children, in the lives of your grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And Christian moms, I believe it's your highest calling. Now there's one in the New Testament who understood this. Her name was Eunice. You might say to yourself, now who in the world is Eunice? You know Mary and Martha, but who is Eunice? Well, Eunice had a famous son who pastored the first century church of Ephesus. And her son's name was Timothy. And so I'm going to talk this morning about Timothy's mom, Eunice. Now to understand a little bit about her background, where she's coming from, Her marital background is recorded in Acts chapter 16 in verse 1. It says here that then he came, that is Paul, he came to Derbe and Lystra. And behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was a Greek. Now, there's two bits of information here about Eunice's marriage that I wanted to talk about. First of all, you notice that he, her and her husband come from two different cultures, two different cultures. She was a Jewess, whereas her husband was a Gentile, a Greek. Now, in the secular society of Lystra, Gentiles or Greeks would often marry Jewish brides. And so secular society accepted it. But may I say that the Jewish community did not. God had commanded Israel in the Old Testament when entering the promised land that they were not to to completely conquer and destroy the people there. They were not to intermarry with Gentiles. In fact, God says, you shall make no covenant with them nor show mercy to them, nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons. And the reason being that Jews were to remain separate from the nation uh, around surrounding them were twofold. First of all, God warns them that they will turn their sons away from following me to serve other gods So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. The non-Jewish spouse will have a negative spiritual impact and influence on the family, turning them away from worshipping the true God to serve idols. But there is also a positive reason God wanted the Jews to be separate from the Gentile world, because God states in verse 6 of Deuteronomy 7, he says, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Jews were to be distinct, separate, a holy people set apart for God. But may I say, many people, many throughout Jewish history did not follow God's command and they intermarried with the Gentiles surrounding them. You read the book of Ezra and there was a problem there. Book of Nehemiah, the last couple chapters, they dealt with intermarriage uh, with the Gentiles around them. And Eunice was, Timothy's mother was one of them. She married a Gentile, a Greek living in Lystra. Now the people in Jerusalem, the Jews in Jerusalem, had a term for these half-breeds. They called them Samaritans. And in the eyes of a devout Jew, the Samaritan was considered to be the scum of the earth. And even Jews outside of Palestine did not accept as legitimate marriages between Gentiles and Jews. And they considered any child born to a marriage like that that they were illegitimate children, not part of the Jewish race. That's why when when Paul wanted to have him, that is Timothy, go with him on this missionary trip, that he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in the region, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Paul knew that unless Timothy was circumcised that he would be a liability among the Jews who might stumble over him as being an uncircumcised half-breed. But there is something else about Eunice's marriage that made it quite challenging and that is it was an unequal yoke because we see in the text that Eunice was a believer She was someone who had put her faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But about her husband, there's no mention of his faith in the scriptures, so the inference is that he was an unbeliever. A believer coupled with an unbeliever. Now it may be, certainly probably was that they got married. They were both unbelievers in the sense. She was a Jew, but not really one that was trusting in Christ. But But uh, here was a believer with an unbeliever now. And Paul warns those in the church of Corinth. He says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers... For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, what communion has light with darkness, what accord has Christ with Belial, or what part has a believer with an unbeliever, and what agreement has the temple of God with an idol? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord." Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Now that, yet you know, in the context, this passage is dealing with, with cooperating with unbelievers in evangelistic or church work or whatever. But it, the, the application is to marriage as well. A believer and an unbeliever brought together. Um, And if perhaps her, perchance her husband was a believer, although we don't know, it appears that he was an absentee husband when it came to spiritual input in the family. Now you might say to yourself, this is not an ideal situation, an ideal marriage. Now may I say today, there's nothing biblically wrong for two people from different cultures to get married. I know that in the past there were some that taught that, you know, that, that Chinese should stay with the Chinese and African Americans should only marry African Americans and Caucasian should only marry whites, you know, and so on. And he tried to take the scriptures and twist them around to teach that. I don't find anywhere in scripture where it, it prohibits different cultures from being married. My daughter, Elizabeth, is married to a Chinese-American and... And uh, yeah, there's different culture. There's, they have a different culture the Chinese do than us, and, and and it does does at times provide challenges for a marriage with different cultures. My wife and I are both Germans, and so we uh, we get along quite well, you know. Uh, but uh, even there, you know, she's a, she's an Ohioan, and I'm a Pennsylvanian. You know, a different culture. You know, even subtle things. But the Bible doesn't forbid. I see. I see African Americans marrying uh, whites, you know, and and I have no problem at all with that, if both love the Lord. You know, that's the that's the main part. Both love the Lord. But you know, if you factor in. Um, different culture, you know, marriage is difficult and parenting can be very hard when both mom and dad come from similar cultural backgrounds and when both know and love the Lord. But if you factor in different cultural backgrounds, different belief systems, you multiply the hardship and the problems. Mom and dad are not on the same page when it comes to discipline, to family rules, Uh, what is allowed or encouraged and what is not, and the children can get mixed messages and at times confusing signals and input. Dad says one thing, mom says another. Now it's not uncommon in our society today for moms to be the spiritual leaders in the homes. Moms are the ones who get the kids ready on a Sunday and take them to church. Moms are the ones who seek to instill within their children more on biblical values. In many homes today, the husband is not spiritually attuned. He's absentee when it comes to church attendance and supporting spiritual things in the home. Many moms are, are left to raise their children alone. Whether the husband is there or not, he could be an absentee father. But, uh, but he's there but not really involved in the discipline of the children or whether he has bailed on the marriage and has left the mom to raise the kids. Some today are even raising their grandchildren. as, as seems like that's becoming uh, more and more prevalent. My hats are off to, to single moms, to grandmas that are raising their kids. We need to pray for them and encourage them. However, you might be tempted to think, is there any hope? Is there any hope for the children that they're going to grow up to love and to serve the Lord? And coming from that environment, coming from that home, I'm here to tell you this morning there is hope. For if, like Eunice, you view motherhood not as a job, not as a curse, but as a strategic ministry, an unparalleled opportunity. To serve the Lord and to instill within your children and grandchildren spiritual truth. Amen. Now what spiritual contributions did Eunice, did Lois, the, Lois was the grandmother, Eunice was the mother making the life of her son, Timothy. Well to find out, turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. And I'd like to begin reading at verse 3. Paul, Paul writes, I thank God, whom I serve with a pure conscience, as my forefathers did, as without ceasing I remember you in my prayers, that night and day, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. Timothy's mom and Timothy's grandma had something which we need today, and that is they had genuine faith. Genuine faith. The NIV calls it sincere faith. The Greek Word for it from the Greek text Paul chooses was hypocritos or "unhypocritical faith." Unhypocritical faith. The word "hypocrite," Greek word, was a Greek theatr theor- the- 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 track- oh, I can't even speak this more theatrical. There, yeah, I got it. Theatrical term for an actor. Literally, it means one who wears a mask. One who wears a mask, one who plays a part, he assumes a role, he appears to be someone different than he really is an actor or an actress. The story is told that Robert Redford was walking one day through a hotel lobby and a woman recognized him and followed him into the elevator. And when she got into the elevator, she looked over at him and said, Are you the real Robert Redford? As the doors of the elevator closed, he replied, Only when I am alone. I'm the real Robert Redford. See, he was an actor. He was a hypocrite who assumed a role, played a part, wore a mask. See, a genuine, sincere faith then is one without a mask, undisguised, unhidden, transparent. What you see is what you get. Authentic, genuine, real. It's a life where life and lip match, where struggles and failures are not denied but confessed and shared. It's a fresh, living, vital, upfront, out in the open relationship with Jesus Christ. It's the real thing. Unfortunately, we are very good at putting on masks, of learning our lines and cues. After being a believer for years, we know the right words to say at the right time. We know what sounds spiritual. And on the outside, we appear to have it all together. We learn how to fake it, and we can fool others, but not our families, and certainly not our children. Our children can see straight through a phony. They know if we're real or not. And grandchildren know if we're real or not. They know. A rather pompous-looking deacon was endeavoring to impress upon a class of boys the importance of living the Christian life. And he asked them this question, Why do people call me a Christian? Well, there was silence in the group. Nobody said anything. And then one little boy raised his head and said, maybe it's because they don't know you. Ouch. (laughs) You know, that's true. Maybe it's because we don't know you. See, the National Sunday School Association conducted a poll of teenagers from 2,000 conservative Protestant churches. And they asked them what alienated them from the church. Why didn't they go to church? The number two answer that they gave was adult hypocrisy. Adult hypocrisy. In his book, The Psychology of Adolescence, Dr. Marvin Powell writes this. He says, The home environment must be a living example of religious influence in operation and not one that simply pays lip service to religion. Attendance at church on Sunday, followed by six days of no trace of religion is not likely to develop a good religious adjustment in the youngster. See, God wants our faith to be authentic, to be real. He doesn't ask us to be a super mom or super dad, just real, authentic Christians. And so what kind of examples are we to our children and to your grandchildren? Can they see faith operating in your life? You, may, you say that you trust God, but is it plain to your children and grandchildren that you do? You say that God changes lives, delivers people from sin, but can your children see the change in you? Have you related to them areas where God's working in your life, perhaps struggles you're having in practicing your faith? You say that prayer is important, but can your children tell by your daily habits that it's important? You say you have a concern for the loss. But can your children and grandchildren tell by your attitude and concern for those around you? I'm not speaking of superhuman faith or heroics, but what I'm talking about this morning is real Christianity. Real Christianity. Are we the real thing this morning? Now, when it comes to our faith, more is caught than taught. More is caught than taught. People watch us. Children watch us. Grandchildren watch us. Nieces and nephews watch us. More is caught than taught. But there's something, one thing, about a living and authentic vital faith, and that is it's contagious. It's contagious. Timothy caught it. He caught it from his mother Eunice, who caught it from her mother Lois. So it's passed down generation but genu- genuine faith is not only caught it's also taught taught turn over a few pages in your bible to 2 Timothy chapter 3 chapter 3 and i like to begin reading at verse 14 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 14 Says here in verse 14, but you must continue, Paul writes, you must continue in the things which you have learned and have been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Faith is not only communicable, it's also communicated through our words. Christian education does not begin in the church. It does not begin in a Christian school. It begins in the home. Christian education begins in the home. But why is the ministry of teaching our children God's truth in the home so important? Three reasons. First of all, because of the trust that's already built into the relationship. There's trust that's already built into the relationship. Notice what Paul says in verse 14. He says, but you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Timothy was encouraged encouraged to continue in the things which he had learned, knowing from whom he had learned them. Now, who were Timothy's teachers? Well, certainly one of them was Paul. Because Paul writes in verse 10 of this chapter, But you have carefully followed my, my doctrine, my manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, hate, perseverance, persecution, affliction, which happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, what persecution I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Timothy had joined Paul and Silas on Paul's second missionary trip. And so he witnessed firsthand some of the persecution and treatment that Paul received at Philippi. And he heard Paul teach. He picked up on the doctrines of the Christian faith. He observed Paul's manner of life, his purpose, his faith. He knew from Paul. And was taught by Paul. He knew of Paul's persecution that happened even in his hometown of Lystra. Where Paul had been stoned and left for dead on Paul's first missionary trip. And so he lived with Paul. He lived with Silas. He knew them so he could trust them. He knew that they would tell them the truth. He knew that Paul and Silas were genuine. They were real. And so was their faith. But Timothy had an earlier teacher than Paul. For when Paul arrived at Lystra, Timothy was already a disciple of Jesus Christ, who was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. And so for Timothy, he had the benefit of early childhood spiritual education from his mom. For note what he writes in verse 15. And that from childhood, you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Timothy learned from home. He learned from home his mom had built into him the word of God. You see, at home you have built in trust. And Paul's kind of asking Timothy, would your mom steer you wrong? Of course not. Therefore continue in what you've learned from home we can also because not only because there's a built in trust but because the, the the education can be started when they're very very young notice the text says that from childhood from childhood you've known the holy scriptures the greek word there for childhood is brephos and it means actually means infancy in fact, it's used in classical Greek, not just of a, it's used in classical Greek of an unborn baby in the womb. From the very beginning of life, from the very beginning, Timothy was caught as a little, little child from early on the Holy Scriptures, the Word of God. And may I say to you, we can never start too early to teach our children, our grandchildren, God's Word. Back in his day, Jewish children memorized large portions of the Old Testament, especially the Pentateuch or the law. And the scriptures that Timothy committed to memory were able to make him wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. In other words, his early childhood spiritual education laid the foundation for Timothy embracing Jesus Christ, as Savior, and Lord when he got older. And although his mom and his mum mom had a highly contagious, authentic, transparent faith, this did not mean that Timothy would automatically come to Christ and embrace him as his savior. It's been said, and I say it again, God has no grandchildren, just children. God has no grandchildren, just children. And so he had to come to faith. He had to exercise his own faith and trust in Jesus. And faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And his early childhood spiritual, scriptural training laid that foundation for his later embracing Christ as his personal Savior and Lord. I think back on our, my own experience of being a parent, Susan and I. From the time that our girls were babies in our arms, we started to teach them about God. We sang songs to them. We, we uh, uh, read scripture. One of the songs we sang to Elizabeth when she was a baby was, Jesus loves the little ones like me, me, me. Jesus loves the little ones like me, me, me. She, that song became so ingrained in her thinking that when she was old enough to speak, she thought her name was Mimi. Uh And she'd go around and say, I'm Mimi Mosbrook. Because Jesus loves the little ones like me, me, me. I have been amazed and thrilled to watch my two daughters grow up. They're adults now. Um, My oldest daughter is going to be 41 and... Tuesday, it's hard to believe. Uh, but not merely physically, but to grow up spiritually and to come to a place in their own spiritual journey where both of them accepted Christ as Savior and Lord. And, you know, being born into a Christian home didn't make them a Christian, just as being born into a pastor's home didn't make them a pastor. Uh, they had to come to faith in Christ. And God gave us the privilege from infancy to lay that foundation in their lives, to sow the seeds to live Christ in front of them, to communicate his word to them, and a thrill to see what God has done in their lives. And it's what's thrilling today is to see my daughters and sons-in-laws teaching their children, my grandchildren, laying the foundation for them to one day trust in Jesus Christ for their salvation. I'm amazed at what biblical truths my two oldest grandsons know already. Joshua just turned seven on Friday, this past Friday. And uh, when he comes over the weekend, last weekend, we had him, Joshua and Sammy, sleep over at Mom, Mom, and Pop Pops. And when Joshua wakes up in the morning, his mind and his mouth go 100 miles an hour. He wakes up talking, I think. And he comes down, and I usually am down in my office or sunroom, and he comes down, he wants to talk to Pop Pop. And we've had some great spiritual discussions about sin, salvation. He, the other week he was talking about the Trinity and Jesus returning, the rapture, the church, heaven. You know, he's only seven years of age. Uh, But uh, the other day, he was was watching a program on TV about dinosaurs, and the program was built on the evolutionary theory that dinosaurs lived millions and millions of years ago. And he turned to my wife and said, that's not what the Bible teaches. You know, the the, the biblical, the the foundation that's being laid in his life, I, last week when I went out of house, he came down while I was having my devotions in the sunroom. He also brought his Bible. It has a Bible for little readers. And he brought his Bible down and he read to me from his Bible. Two passages. About Adam and Eve and about the flood. I'll tell you, it made me cry. You know, because... Susan and I laid the foundation in our girls' lives by not only seeking to model genuine, authentic faith, but communicate our faith to them from infancy, teaching them the Word of God. And now Elizabeth and David are laying the spiritual foundation in our grandsons' lives by modeling authentic faith and teaching them the Word of God. And my prayer has been since they were born and even before. My prayer has always been that they would embrace Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord and that they would grow up to know, love, and serve the Lord and that God will one day use them to reach their generation with the gospel of Christ. Because I realize I'm not going to be around when they get older. You know, I'm 68 now and 30, 20, 30 years from now I'll be 98 and I probably won't be around, you know, to to see what God's going to do through them. But my prayer is for that. And I also pray for the same for Hazel, our one-year-old granddaughter, as Abigail and Jason are also intent on bringing her up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and start teaching her about God and His Word. You can never start too young. Never start too young. And so parents and grandparents, I say to us this morning, God has given us a tremendous opportunity to spiritually impact our children and grandchildren. Start young and still within their hearts the the, the love that, that God loves them, that the word of God is true, that the Bible is a book to follow, model before them a contagious faith, a life changed by God. And what an opportunity Don't relegate that responsibility to the church or to a Christian school. The church is here to aid you in your ministry of early childhood spiritual education. Christian schools can also be an aid, but nothing can substitute for for authentic, communicable faith at home. Our children, grandchildren need to see our genuine faith in Christ. They need to see what's important to us, our purpose in life, our manner of living. And may they trust us to tell them the truth because they see the truth of God in us. So the ministry of teaching God's word to our children and grandchildren is so important because of the trust that's already built into the relationship, especially if we're seeking to be authentic, genuine followers of Jesus Christ. And it's important because we can begin when they're very young. And may I say to you here that it's important to begin when they are young. There is a fallacy being expressed today that one should not force their religion upon a child, that one should wait until a child is older so that they can make up their own minds as to what they believe, wait until they're young adults for them to investigate various faiths or religions and let them decide for themselves at that point. And may I say to you, that's why today there's a growing number of non-religious teens and young adults who identify with no religious group and thus know nothing about God, sin, salvation, heaven, or hell. Now I hope none of us have bought into this lie of Satan that one should wait to teach children the fundamentals of the faith. Teaching children the fundamentals of the faith does not mean that they're going to automatically accept Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Teaching Children, the fundamentals of faith, scriptures only makes one wise unto salvation, but they're going to have to personally exercise their own faith in Christ in order to be saved. But it does lay the foundation for the Spirit of God to draw them to Christ. Now there's one more reason why spiritual education should begin at home, and that is because our teaching can be related to life. Our teaching can be related to life. Moses in Deuteronomy 6 taught that the Israelites, as they were about to embark on crossing the Jordan River to possess the land that God had promised to them, he, he taught them the great Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great declaration of monotheistic Judaism. One God. And to love him with everything that you have. Be totally committed to God. Love only him. But this truth needs to be communicated along with the additional commands. So Moses goes on to say, And these words which I command you today shall be in your hearts. That is, he gave them the law. And he says, "I want you to, I want you to memorize this. I want you to internalize this truth. Commit it to memory. Take it to heart. And then he goes on to say, you shall teach them diligently to your children. Shall talk of them when you sit in your home. When you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. God never intended spiritual education and training to be compartmentalized, to be something we do on Sunday or something that is confined to an academic setting such as a Christian school, but our faith is to be integrated in life. And it's in those informal settings of the home that is perfect setting for biblical truth to be practically related to life. We are to talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. It's those teachable moments. It's those teachable moments like when you're sitting around the supper table and your son or daughter or grandchild raises an issue, perhaps discussed at school or something they saw on TV. It's when you're outside in nature walking along and use that moment to not only talk about creation, but about the Creator. Creator. It's when they come to you with a question on their mind and you have an opportunity of sharing what God's answer is. It's when they see how you relate your faith to everyday living and they begin to copy you. Seize those teachable moments. To instill in your children and grandchildren the word of God. Lay the biblical foundation that will pay spiritual dividends in the future. Integrate your faith with everyday living so it's natural for you to speak of God and his word. Relating it to life and self. Now this is the ministry of being a mom. And what a great ministry it is. You have a fantastic opportunity. You have a fantastic opportunity as you minister to your family, grandmoms, and pop-pops too. We have a tremendous opportunity God's given to us to instill God's word into the hearts of our grandchildren. What a ministry for us today. But in closing, may I say to you, all of us face the challenges this morning. And that challenge is that of living an authentic Christian life. To be real. Is your faith genuine and real? First, do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you accepted Him as your Lord and your Master? Are you fully and totally committed to the Lord today? You might be able to uh, fool the people at work or even the people of this church But you will not be able to fool the people who know you best, your family, your children or your grandchildren. They're watching. They know whether you're real or not. But more importantly, you and God knows as well. So I ask, have you come to the place in your spiritual journey where you have humbled yourselves before the Lord, admitted that you're a sinner, unable to save yourself, your own good works, and you've embraced Jesus Christ as Savior, calling upon his name to be saved? Now, if you have trusted in Christ for salvation, what difference has Christ made in your life? Have your priorities and lifestyles changed? Has your purpose in life been altered? Are you intent on obeying God and His word even means suffering for your faith? Are you outspoken about your love for God? Are you totally committed today to Jesus Christ? Is He the center, the focus of your life, the one that you're living for, is He the center of your home? Are you quick to acknowledge your sin and seek God's forgiveness? If you've hurt others, are you quick to own up to what you've done and seek reconciliation? Are you an authentic Christian? Authentic Christian. The late Howard Hendricks, who was one of my professors at Dallas Seminary, once said this to the class. He said, Many have been inoculated with a mild case of Christianity, so they never come down with a real disease. We're inoculated with a mild case of Christianity, so we never come down with the real disease. So I close with this ask with this question Do you have a mild case or are you highly contagious?